0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. As you all know, there's an important election in America tomorrow, and we'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, last week, voters in Brazil ousted their far-right leader, Jair Bolsonaro, electing the leftist former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known simply as Lula, to replace him. Despite refusing to formally concede, Bolsonaro has begun to transfer power to Lula. That wasn't always a sure thing. The outgoing president has long attacked Brazil's election system as rife with fraud and suggested that the left was trying to rig the vote. Sound familiar? To discuss that election and what it means for the world, I'm joined by my friend Ian Bremmer, the president of the Eurasia Group and CAFE's unofficial foreign policy correspondent. Ian, welcome back to the show. Dude, good to be with you, Preet. So I know everyone is thinking about the American election, but it's sometimes interesting, as we've done recently, to talk about other countries and what they portend for this country. I'm not going to spend any time asking about the U.K., because that's another whole can of worms that we've it's, talked about It's, a it's bit. hardly, it's
1: not quite an election, right? I mean, they just kind
0: of appointed the person, you know, so. Yeah, next week, I wonder who it's going to be. So yeah. let's talk about Brazil, which I know you were very expert on. Okay, President Bolsonaro, in 90 seconds, tell us about him.
1: Well, uh, to, to connect with your opening, it was several months ago that he said uh, that the only way that this election could resolve would be either if he won, he were arrested, or he were killed. And it turns out uh, that none of those three things have happened, and he (laughs) backed down, wouldn't you believe it? So, yeah, uh, conservative, outsider, military background, uh, markets like him, uh, very conservative on social issues, has said a lot of problematic things about women, about gays, and so forth. But, I mean, generally speaking, the real issue for the rest of the world is, is he damaging institutions? Is he an election denier?
0: Why did he lose?
1: Uh, Well, it was close. First of all, it was very close. It was uh, not even two percentage points away and the polls got it wrong. The polls expected um, a significantly larger margin and in Brazil, like in uh, many other democracies, uh, people that don't trust institutions, people that believe in conspiracy theories, also don't trust pollsters. So they don't even they either they don't respond to pollsters or they lie to pollsters. So you do get this shy, aggressive anti-establishment vote, and just in the United States, you get it in Brazil. So he could have won. First of all, um, he lost in part because the economy was not performing well. And uh, Lula, when he was president, uh, was in an extraordinary boom. Commodities were very high price, super cycle, they used to call it. Uh, and so he benefits from a bit of that. He's also tacked effectively to the center. They had a harder time portraying him as a strong leftist, uh, given his running mate um, from a center from a center left uh, political party, um, and, as well as the way he's been talking about the economy more recently. So all of those things together um, gave, and, and the general anti-establishment Establishment trends. So Macron does really well until he's in power and then everyone's angry with him. Bolsonaro was an outsider, but after four years of running the country, he's not anymore. And so he gets the anti-establishment vote going against him.
0: What's the electorate like in Brazil? Is it as polarized as it is in the U.S.? Almost. Are there a lot of moderates yeah. No, no. I mean, again, social
1: media is playing such a significant role. If it wasn't for Facebook, I don't think Bolsonaro becomes president. Uh, there's a lot of fake news, disinformation, not just misinformation. Um, there's active efforts to turn uh, the political opponents as enemies of the people. Uh, Bolsonaro is incredibly opposed to the establishment media, has made them into enemies as well. It's in many ways. I mean, there there are different Guardrails protecting democracy in Brazil than there are in the United States. It might be interesting to talk about that. But the uh, erosion of democracy driven by social media platforms that create incredible incentives for politicians to become further and further extreme and demonize their opponents as other and hateful, that is
0: absolutely at play in Brazil the way it is in the United States. So let's talk about what you just mentioned the guardrails that exist in Brazil. Here in the US, I think some of the guardrails have not held. Many of them have. I think the courts have held. I think the system we have of separation of powers and life tenure for federal judges has helped. Is there anything we should learn from in Brazil as far as guardrails go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the the judiciary is not as much of a guardrail in Brazil. It has been co-opted more by the left. It was actually used. Uh, The Supreme Electoral uh, Tribunal um, made a bunch of um, efforts, uh, legal efforts to uh, make life harder for Bolsonaro. They were definitely putting their thumb on the scale. Um, And that's a problem, right? It's an erosion of what should be an independent branch of government. On the other hand, the military in Brazil, similarly to the United States, has been been very professional and has stayed independent. They remember the days um, of the coup of the military control of the country. They didn't want to return to it. And uh, they, in addition to several of Bolsonaro's allies, very quickly after the election stood up and said, this election was fine and we're accepting the outcome. That was a fairly big deal. Another thing that really matters in Brazil, and they have an advantage here compared to the United States, is they have a federal election. They don't have elections state by state, so it's very hard to overturn or control. So in the United States, you had Trump that was literally calling individual state authorities of his political party saying, find me votes. And they said, no, we're not going to. But who knows what happens in 2024 with a lot of election deniers in power. In Brazil, there's no one for Bolsonaro to call. So what you have to, the only thing you could do is question the election overall, the electronic voting, for example, because it's all done nationally. And that clearly wasn't gonna work. One other thing that's a big guardrail in Brazil is that in the United States, you've got a strong Republican Party, a strong Democratic Party, and Trump has managed to co-opt most of the Republican Party, at least for the time being. In Brazil, It's a much more decentralized party system, fragmented party system. So Bolsonaro just doesn't have a large number of political confederates in office in Congress. He doesn't have that party structure that he can use and deploy to his direction. And so in the same way that I remember when you and I were doing a pod before January 6th. And at that point, it was very clear to me, lots of things to worry about, but no chance of a coup because you just didn't have the ability to overturn those guardrails, no matter what Trump tried to do. In Brazil, there was a very significant likelihood that Bolsonaro would come out and say, I refuse to concede this election was stolen, but there was no chance of a coup because those guardrails
0: were too strong. So two questions. Yep. When Bolsonaro was posturing about not accepting the election results in advance and saying it was rigged, Was he taking a page from Trump? And two, why did he capitulate? He was taking a page from
1: Trump. And I mean, not just from Trump. I mean, there are so many anti-establishment populists that are finding that the best way to play to their base and to undermine their opponents um, is by taking this maximalist. The only way the election can possibly be legitimate is if I win, which you know is is you know, the exact antithesis of democracy. But nonetheless, it again it plays it plays in this environment. Why did he capitulate? He capitulated because it was fairly obvious um, that he did not have a pathway to continue to fight uh, that did not risk him uh, being made uneligible to run again in four years time because if he had actively called for violence and there were a lot of truckers that were out uh, in fact at the at the height uh, 24 hours after the election and remember first 24 hours Bolsonaro says nothing he's not in public at all he's not made any statements it's very clear that Lula has won there is not a single statement from the president uh, outgoing president of Brazil you have truckers that are literally disrupting highways, 400 different highways across the country. I mean, snarling supply chain, impossible for people to go to work. I know that Brazil uh, traffic is horrible in the best of times. This was the worst of times. And the fact that he wasn't saying anything was motivating these people to come out and do more. But after 48 hours with the Supreme Court saying that uh, you're gonna be penalized, we're gonna you know, have big fines against you if you don't get out, with the head of the military and the highway police, Actively starting to break up some of those disruptions from the truckers. Bolsonaro finally comes out. He delivers a non concession concession speech. He does not concede. He doesn't say he accepts it, but literally right after he gives the speech, his chief of staff stands up, takes the podium from him, and says, We're now going to facilitate a legal transition to the next administration. And Bolsonaro does come out and tells his supporters, the truckers, don't do anything illegal, don't disrupt traffic. So I mean, this is as much of a backdown as his fragile ego could possibly allow.
0: Yeah, look, and as you pointed out in more than one social media post, quote, Americans might take notice, end quote. Is there any evidence that during this period, right before and right after the election that Bolsonaro consulted with Trump?
1: Uh, No, there's no evidence that he spoke with Trump. Uh, There is um, a lot of evidence that American uh, hardline election deniers were watching Brazil carefully. You had Steve Bannon, for example, who was publicly saying that he shouldn't, that Bolsonaro shouldn't concede, um, implying that the election was stolen. Not very helpful. In the same way that you saw like Tucker Carlson and Bannon working closely with Viktor Orban, an illiberal Um, would-be authoritarian that runs a country that is kind of a hybrid democracy now because of his efforts um, in Hungary. Um, You saw some of that in Brazil, but there's no indication that there's high-level engagement or strategizing between Trump himself and his inner circle um, and Bolsonaro in uh, in the aftermath of this election. No, I haven't seen that.
0: Could you put in perspective, if you can, for American listeners, what the delta is, what the swing is between the right-wing politics of bolsonaro as compared to the left-wing politics of lula like what what would the equivalent be in the us going from what kind of leader to what kind of leader
1: well i mean you could say it's going from trump to elizabeth warren i wouldn't quite go bernie sanders but uh, elizabeth warren I mean, you could you could make that argument but you know let's keep in mind that in the trump administration economic policy didn't change that much under the various, like under Mnuchin, uh, for example, under Lighthizer as USTR. I mean, these are people that one would consider part of the establishment, part of the elite from the GOP uh, for, for decades now, former Goldman Sachs markets guy, former Reagan appointee, I mean, you know, nothing usually unusual. And so when you're talking about what US trade policy, tariff policy, economic policy looked like under Trump. It wasn't such a dramatic shift for a guy that was talking about drain the swamp, looked very swampy. Bolsonaro, a former military guy who really is incredibly undereducated on the economy, has a super minister of finance named Paulo Guedes, who I know personally, I personally know quite well. Um, and, and Bolsonaro largely deferred economic policy to Getas, And occasionally when Bolsonaro tried to intervene, the markets would punish them pretty strongly. There were a couple of times when Getas kind of sort of threatened to resign and Bolsonaro backed down. So there is in principle a big ideological delta between what Bolsonaro represents and the center right of pro-business elite conservatives in Brazil. But the reality of those policies are not so radically different. Where you did get a big difference is in the anti-establishment media, you know, the fake news stuff, the social media presence, the identity politics stuff, which doesn't change so much how Brazil is seen in the world, but does certainly lead to a lot more dysfunction and institutional erosion inside Brazil. Lula, much more of a strong social democrat with some socialist roots, Who would be talking about huge redistribution of wealth and massive, you know, sort of taxation of corporates, all that sort of thing. Um, but is, is entering power in a vastly more constrained economic situation with high inflation 90 percent of the budget already sort of mandated so very little room um to uh, to change uh funding and expenditure and a, and a fiscal cap law uh, that he ha- would have to go through Congress to change he might get a little bit in the early days of a honeymoon but not very much and so uh, Lula as well I think is going to end up governing at least in terms of Brazil's economy as much more of a central interest than one would otherwise expect.
0: Big place they are different in policy is on climate and deforestation. So maybe that explains a tweet you posted a couple of days ago which was quote there will be more stability in Brazil's transition from Bolsonaro to new president Lula than you might think. And I assume that's because of those constraints. Absolutely. Because you wouldn't think there would be so much stability if you're sort of toggling hard right, hard left, hard left, hard right. And I wanted to ask you, if you think that this is sort of a new feature of democracies, including liberal democracies, including our democracy. There was a a thoughtful listener who I had a conversation with this week who wanted to know about the future of democracy in America, which is on everyone's mind. And what came to my mind was something that you had said in one of your prior risk reports about what what may be a feature of American politics going forward is kind of an instability insofar as it'll be lurching back and forth. And... Rather than sort of center-left, center-right people taking the reins of power, you can get a huge switch, maybe something like a Trump, to an Elizabeth Warren, and then back again. Is there anything about the modern world that suggests to you that that's where we are?
1: Yeah, I think you're going to see more of that. Um, And I think as that happens, allies of the United States see less consistency from the U.S. and therefore more willingness to hedge. I think part of the reason why the Saudis in the person of Mohammed bin Salman decided to kick Biden pretty hard after the trip and go ahead with this a uh, significant reduction of oil production is because MBS's perspective is, well, Biden's never gonna really trust me and work with me no matter what. And if he's gone, the Republicans are gonna do exactly what they used to do anyway. So what does it really matter? How much I'm aligned with this one individual administration where when I work with the Chinese, I know that I'm gonna be working with them consistently for the next 10, 15, 20 years in the person of Xi Jinping. I think that there are allies of the United States that are, they were very concerned, uh, the Europeans in particular, about the future of NATO, about the future of transatlantic relations When Trump was in office. They feel better about Biden, but they understand that Biden has constraints and may not be there for very long. And yeah. so they have to do more themselves. So I think that there is more impunity on the part of would-be rogues. There's more hedging on the part of allies. It does actually diminish and undermine the, the power of the United States on the global stage, even as the U.S. dollar is at 20, 25-year highs. U.S. tech companies have all this power, U.S. energy, U.S. food production. I mean, there's so much raw power the Americans have, but the political dysfunction um, and the polarization undermines, undermines the ability to it. leverage some of it. Yeah.
0: Two Two final quick questions. We should point out, because I don't think we have yet, that among other things, Lula's background includes a 19-month stint in jail for corruption and convictions, but those were later annulled. Is there a trend going on where leaders of countries who have been accused credibly of corruption make a comeback, Bibi, in Israel, Yep. Lula in Brazil, yep. we don't Trump know what's going to happen US. with Trump, maybe yep. in 2024? Speak briefly to that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and for two reasons. Um, one, because legitimacy, legitimately you're seeing more impunity and willing to break existing norms and laws as anti-establishment populists on the left and the right get stronger. So there is more illegal activity that is going on, or at least activity that would be considered beyond the pale is now considered more acceptable. Um, and also the willingness of opposition Parties to go after you really hard. Uh, and then when you lose power to say, that's it, we're going to arrest you. We're going to, you know, uh, impeachment is becoming much more frequently used as a political tool in the United States. Like, I don't know yeah, what well, the Republicans are going to impeach Biden for when they take over the House, but they're going Doesn't to, matter. right? They're going to. No, Doesn't they're, they're going
0: to do it three times. That's right. Because you got to do a two plus one. Ian Bremer, thanks for joining us. Yep. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashur. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azalai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.